Episode 27, I'll say hello to my little friend, aka the Beretta Cast, the New Zealand podcast covering philosophy, theology, social issues, politics, and anything else that takes my interest. I'm Glenn Peoples, your host. If you remember, in episode 26, I started a new series called In Search of the Soul, a series devoted to the mind body problem. I started by outlining traditional Platonic or Cartesian dualism. Now that's the view that has held sway for most of Christian history in the Western world, but it's a view that is losing the monopoly that it once had, uh, a fact that I admit to being somewhat grateful for. I looked at some of the major arguments for substance dualism, in particular the argument from thought, the argument from qualia, and the argument from the unity of consciousness, And I laid out in very basic terms my reasons for thinking that those arguments, well, they leave much to be desired. In particular, and this is one I want you to remember during today's episode, I pointed out that lurking behind much of the argument from thought is really an argument from ignorance. In today's episode, episode 27, I'll start to move along the spectrum from dualism towards physicalism. The last episode was all about strong substance dualism. Today I want to introduce a view called emergent dualism. One philosopher who has written more in defense of emergent dualism than most is philosopher of religion William Hasker, and some of what I say today will be in conversation with Dr. Hasker's work. One question that critics of traditional Cartesian dualism have raised from time to time is how exactly an immaterial soul can act on a material brain and body. Immaterial things, surely, do not have electricity, they don't you know, have electrical discharges, they don't prod or poke the body or brain, and, and it's difficult to see how they might have or how they might do anything at all to the body. Hasker, however, doesn't think that since we can't figure out how an immaterial soul interacts with a material brain, it can't do so. After all, he says, and I quote, it may be true that there is some difficulty in imagining just how this influence operates, but what of that? There is no reason to think that reality is limited by what we can easily imagine, end quote. Hasker's response, I think, is particularly appropriate in response to Christian non-dualists who raise this objection, because one would think, or at least I think, a Christian physicalist, that is a Christian who's not a dualist, is committed to the view that the Spirit of God is capable of influencing a person, a physical person in their view, and thus it must be the case, as far as the Christian physicalist is concerned, that the immaterial can influence the material somehow. The very fact that Christians believe that an immaterial God created the physical universe should settle that question forever. This principle will be very important later on, so it needs to be noted now. When I say later on, I mean later on in the series. Hasker claims, rightly, 
that the limits of our ability to imagine how something can happen must not determine whether or not we think something is possible. This became an important principle in episode 26, where I found fault with some Cartesian dualists because they moved immediately from their own admitted ignorance about how matter could think to the dogmatic conclusion that it is impossible for matter to think. So let's keep this principle in mind today. And on that note, let's get started. So what is emergent dualism? If emergent dualism does not, like Platonic or Cartesian dualism, involve reference to an immaterial substance added to the body, then what does it say the mind is? Firstly, what does it mean for a thing to be emergent? Now, it's not a new idea, even if the language only emerged in the 20th century. One of the earliest defenders of the idea that we call emergentism was the philosopher best known for being an advocate of utilitarianism, John Stuart Mill. This is what he said. He said, and I quote, All organized bodies are composed of parts similar to those composing inorganic nature, and which have even themselves existed in an inorganic state. There seems to be a word missing there. But the phenomena of life, which result from the juxtaposition of those parts in a certain manner, bear no analogy to any of the effects which would be produced by the action of the component substances considered as mere physical agents. To whatever degree we might imagine our knowledge of the properties of the several ingredients of a living body to be extended and perfected, it is certain that no mere summing up of all the separate actions of those elements will ever amount to the action of the living body itself. So you get the idea of the thing that is produced being more than just the sum of its parts. Emergentism defined more precisely as a philosophy of mind is a lot like this. Explaining what a mental emergent property is, William Hasker explains, and I quote, Mental properties are emergent in the following sense. They are properties that manifest themselves when the appropriate material constituents are placed in special, highly complex relationships. But these properties are not observable in simpler configurations, nor are they derivable from the laws which describe the properties of matter as it behaves in these simpler configurations. Which is to say, mental properties are emergent. They involve emergent causal powers that are not in evidence in the absence of consciousness. Now to flesh out this idea, and to enable the reader to see that the idea of an emergent mind does have initial plausibility, uh, Hasker appeals to the example of magnetic fields, which are generated by material objects, but not identical with them, and they have causal powers that the material objects themselves, says Hasker, lack. He says, and I quote, A magnetic field, for example, is a real existing concrete entity distinct from the magnet which produces it. This is shown by the fact that the field normally occupies and is detectable in a region of space considerably larger than that occupied by the magnet. The field is generated by the magnet in virtue of the fact that the magnet's material constituents are arranged in a certain way, namely when a certain number of the iron molecules are aligned so that their 
microfields reinforce each other and produce an overall detectable field. But once generated, the field exerts a causality of its own, on the magnet itself as well as on other objects in the vicinity. Keeping all this in mind, we can say that as a magnet generates its magnetic field, so the brain generates its field of consciousness, end quote. So there's, there's the general idea. It's very important to realize that emergence is not merely the view that the mind emerged in past tense from the body, like a kind of baby to which the body gave birth and now which develops independently. Emergence is the view that the mind emerges not emerged, but emerges in the present continuous sense, uh, sorry, present continuous tense from the body. It did not emerge from the body, it is emergent upon the body. I think Haskell makes this helpfully clear when he says, as a consequence of certain configuration and function of the brain and nervous system, a new entity comes into being, namely the mind or soul. This new thing is not merely a configurational state of the cells of the brain. The mind on this view is a thing in itself. It is what some philosophers call a substance. It is not made of the chemical stuff of which the brain is composed, though it crucially depends on that chemical stuff, both for its origin and its continuance. End quote. So the mind is continually sustained and continually emergent upon the body. In fairness to Hesker, I must allow that when he says the mind is dependent on that chemical stuff of the brain, he's only saying this because he's talking about minds that are emergent on brains. But we, we do have to allow, in principle, that brains are not themselves necessary for the definition of emergentism to be met. Perhaps a number of different possible organisms or perhaps God himself, could have given rise to the same emergent mind. But the point is um, that in order for the mind or anything to really be emergent and not independent, it must, for its own existence, be dependent on the ongoing existence of whatever the, the thing is that it's emergent upon, All right, be it a brain or something else. Again, Hasker notes elsewhere, and I'm not going to multiply further examples of what is quite clear here, he notes elsewhere of his view that, quote, it is an emergent dualism because the mental individual emerges from the organism and is sustained by it. It is not, as in traditional dualism, a separate element added to the organism from outside by divine fiat, end quote. The emergence of the mind is continually dependent on the brain from which the mind emerges these quotations from Hasker provide an excellent overall, even if somewhat simplified, description of emergentism. In short, emergentism involves a thing being generated by and sustained by another thing, and the generated thing may have causal powers not possessed by the generating object. To the extent that a concept differs from this, it is not emergentism. Now up until this point, at least this is the impression I got, up until this point, anyone who was waiting for Haskell to provide a third way between dualism and physicalism, which is what he seems to think he's done, if you read his book as a whole or his articles, he talks about his view as a kind of middle road between dualism and physicalism. And if you were waiting for him to do that, you'd be feeling a bit shortchanged at this point, or at least I was. 
Like, dare I say, like other physicalists, Hasker presents us with a view of the mind where, and I quote, the potentiality for conscious life and experience really does exist in the nature of matter itself, end quote. His concept of the mind has the mind wholly dependent on the body, being produced by the body, dependent on the body slash brain for its ongoing existence, and everything that affects the brain affects the mind as a result. If the brain is electrically stimulated the right way, the mind will produce certain feelings because of its dependence on the brain. If the brain is harmed, the outcome consistent with emergentism and with scientific observation for that matter is that the mind suffers suffers loss of function as a result, which is why emergentism has no problem at all with the fact that when the body consumes alcohol, the mind gets drunk and so forth. Every intervening or harmful cause acting on the brain produces an effect in the mind. That kind of sounds a lot like physicalism to me. I'm not the only one to realize that this view doesn't really warrant the label dualism. Frank Dilly, a well-known philosopher of mind today who advocates strong Cartesian dualism, Frank Dilly notes the views of two different philosophers, William Hasker, who calls himself an emergent dualist, and John Searle, who calls himself a physicalist. And he notes that Hasker's view is, quote, explicitly dualistic, in that it takes the label dualism, while Searle's view is, and I quote, explicitly materialistic. But, says Dilly, and I quote, the views look substantially the same to me, end quote. I think it's less misleading to stop calling this emergent dualism and to just call it a kind of physicalism rather than a type of dualism. We just call it emergentism. But I also think it doesn't really matter what we call it. It does differ from Cartesian dualism, and it does differ from other varieties of physicalism. So I won't call it emergent dualism, I'll just call it emergentism and move on from there. So what does emergentism have going for it? I think it's incredibly hard to see how we might go about testing to see if emergentism is true, but that doesn't count against it. Uh, I think it's very hard to see how we would go about testing some other theories of mind as well. I think the most promising approach is to ask how well emergentism fits emergentism fits with other things that we know and whether or not it has any implausible implications. At first glance, I think that emergentism seems to have a lot going for it. For one, it captures the very intuitive and clearly scientifically grounded fact that the mind depends on the brain for its existence and its constitution. It's a patently obvious observation that what happens to the brain affects the mind. Alcohol, physical trauma, electrical stimulation, a lobotomy, all of these things are physical causes with psychological or mental results. As a direct result of this sensible admission, an emergentist is not bound by a very dubious argument used in support of Cartesian dualism, namely the unity of consciousness, as I discussed in episode 26. It can admit, as Hasker does sometimes, that the consciousness can be divided. In fact, Hasker notes brain-splitting experiments as proof of this. That's an example that I used in part one of this series. 
So one scientific embarrassment suffered by traditional dualism can simply be avoided altogether by emergentism. Although, confusingly, there are some times when Hasker does appeal to the unity of consciousness against physicalism. Perhaps his own consciousness was split and he is at odds with himself over this. Another appealing feature of emergentism, commending it over traditional substance dualism, is the way in which emergentism avoids what some might see as trivial quibbling over whether or not animals or other creatures have souls. Since the soul or conscious mind is an emergent feature of physical systems, namely brains and nervous systems, we can simply follow the evidence wherever it leads in the case of animals. To the extent that they exhibit evidence of consciousness and have brains and nervous systems that can sustain complex thinking, to the extent that they have the kind of things that produce minds, they can be said to have minds or souls or to be conscious. So you don't sort of get bogged down in what some may regard as as a medieval, not really fair, I know, but some may regard it as a medieval quibbling akin to whether or you know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or whether animals have souls. You don't need to, uh, to get into that kind of speculation. You can simply examine the facts and find out. But these are just features of dualism which make dualism, sorry, emergentism, appealing if it's true. What reasons are there for thinking that the mind is a thing, a substance external to the brain? Instead of embracing emergentism, why not just become a physicalist and be done with it? Why continue to hang on to something that resembles dualism in some way? Well, here some emergentists appeal to two arguments that are also arguments for traditional dualism, but which I left out of the, of the first part of the series because I wanted to address them as emergentists present them. Although not everyone who I will quote using these arguments is an emergentist, they just happen to be arguments that can be and have been used for emergentism, or at least by dualists, people who call themselves dualists who are emergentists. And those two arguments are the argument from free will and the argument from the afterlife. This episode is going to look at the argument from free will. So what is the argument from free will, the one that we're about to start with? And at this point, I feel a bit like the leading character in a children's pantomime, so I may as well play the part. Do you remember the argument from ignorance from part one of this series? He's a bad fellow, all right, always sneaking around trying to make other arguments look more impressive than they really are. I'm worried that we might see him again today, so I need your help, boys and girls. Will you help me? Yeah! Great. If you see the argument from ignorance, I want you to point and scream. Can you do that for me? Yes! You can? Let's try it now, shall we? Oh boy, that sure is swell. So let's be on the listen for our young friends who will serve as our early warning system should the argument from ignorance rear its head. On behalf of emergent dualism or just emergentism, it might be argued that the mind needs to be a non-physical thing in order for it, for the person, to have free will. This is because, in brief, all physical things are acted on causally by other physical things 
the sum total of the influence of which are absolutely determinative. There are no other causes. Likewise, if the mind is a physical thing or its functions are directly dependent on physical things, it too has its actions absolutely determined by physical causes outside of its processes of thought, so it cannot act freely. Now this is an an issue that is going to come up in a future episode in this series where I discuss a view called epiphenomenalism. I'll explain what that means when it comes up, where I discuss the issue of mental causation more fully than I will today. Interestingly, when writing elsewhere about not the mind-body problem, but the question of free will in and of itself, William Hasker, you know, the main proponent of dualism that I mentioned today, actually comes to my defense here. When defending the doctrine of free will, Hasker replies to one of the implicit assumptions in arguments for fatalism. That assumption is that since the universe is a physical system, we can, just by knowing that knowing all the facts about the current physical state of affairs in the universe, predict every future event in that physical system that is the universe. Because fatalism is the idea that the future is entirely based on the present, which is entirely based on the past. So if you knew all the physical facts about the universe, you'd know the future of the universe. That's an argument for fatalism. It's the assumption that the present state of affairs, physically speaking, is absolutely absolutely determinative of a specific future state of affairs. But as Haskell notes, even when we remove interfering agents like human beings from the picture, This is a view that we now know to be false, and it reflects an outdated view of physical causation grounded in ignorance. I'm going to quote from his book on metaphysics where he addresses this. He says, and I quote, The picture of the clockwork universe, though gradually modified, is a fair summary of the physicist's view of of the world from about 1650 until 1925. But the discovery by Heisenberg in in that year of the uncertainty relations changed things fundamentally by introducing theories according to which the behavior of the ultimate physical particles is governed by chance and is predictable only in probabilistic terms. Even after this physics of chance was well established scientifically, a good many philosophers and scientists clung to the hope that this situation represented merely a temporary state of physical theory and that indeterministic theories would be replaced by those postulating determinism at still a deeper level. Well known as Einstein's dictum that, quote, God doesn't play dice, end quote. But Einstein seems to have been wrong about this, end quote. Now, Hasker isn't saying that this means that physical particles of stuff in the universe make free choices. That's kind of silly. But it does show us that even if the mind is physical, that fact alone does not commit us to the belief that all of our future choices are determined now. But this might not come as much comfort to you if you're worried about free will. Perhaps it's true that the effects of all physical causes can't be known in advance. But all this means is that what will be caused is not predictable. It doesn't mean it's not caused. So maybe there is still a case to answer here. 
and dualism might be required in order to preserve free will, or stated differently, mental causation over the physical, and not only physical causation over the mental. That's basically dualism. So the dualist thinks. First, let me say that I do have a worry about this approach to defending dualism. It's not a conclusive rebuttal that I'm about to offer by any means, but it's a caution that I think has not occurred to some, when it really should have. Basically, the approach here is to say that we cherish the idea of libertarian free will for this or that reason. Maybe we, we just like it or we have some theological reason for cherishing it. So we will reject any theory of mind that prevents us from continuing to believe in libertarian free will. And simply by showing that a theory of mind is incompatible with our notion of libertarian free will shall be regarded as a rebuttal of that theory of mind. I want to suggest that this may, note, may, simply be a case of dogmatism and unwillingness to consider the possibility of being wrong about one's view of free will. If there are reasons to give up a particular theory of mind, and if giving up that theory of mind forces you to change your views on free will, then you should actually consider changing your stance on free will. That this new theory of mind would force you to change your view of free will is not a compelling reason to stick with the theory of mind that you currently hold. That's just dogmatic. That's not, not even considering the possibility of giving up a view that you currently hold. That being said... If I can comfort those big babies who couldn't handle losing their belief in libertarian free will by suggesting that dualism might not be required for libertarian free will after all, then the non-dualist position that I do hold will have a broader appeal. So it's worth saying something further to this end, to suggesting that maybe dualism might not be necessary for free will after all. Remember Stuart Getz from part one of this series, He's the dualist who says that his belief in dualism is a basic belief that we are justified in believing without any further evidence. In spite of this, however, he does offer some evidence. And in particular, a piece of evidence that he offers is the argument from free will. So I'll quote from Stuart Getz, although he's not an emergentist, he gives us a good example of someone using the argument from free will. He says, and I quote, Just as I find myself having the basic belief that I am a soul, that is, he means a non-material mind, so also I find myself having the basic belief that I have freedom of the will in the libertarian sense, that I am free to make undetermined choices for purpose. Moreover, just as my basic belief that I am a soul is grounded in an awareness of myself as a soul, so also my belief that I have libertarian free will is grounded in an awareness of my making such choices. End quote. It's not a promising start, any more than his argument that he is correct to believe in substance dualism, but I'll let that slide for now. I'm not going to argue about whether or not libertarian free will is a correct view. Getz is just setting up the argument which he then gives, saying that, and I quote, there is a link between these two basic beliefs, end quote. In explaining what that connection is, Getz quotes uh, philosopher John Searle, as follows. John Searle says, and I quote, Human freedom is just a fact of experience. In order for us to have radical freedom, it looks as if we would have to postulate that inside each of us 
was a self that was capable of interfering with the causal order of nature. That is, it looks as if we would have to contain some entity that was capable of making molecules sway from their path. End quote. First, um, it's worth pointing out that although this is what John Searle said, it's not quite what appears in the paper written by Getz. He actually added a few extra things to it. Uh, where Searle said that it looks as if we would have to postulate something inside each of us, Getz adds in square brackets our physical bodies, making inside of us mean inside of our physical bodies, so that he could then go on to talk about this thing being something added to our physical bodies. Where Searle said that it looks like we would have to contain some entity, Getz added the word substance in square brackets. But Searle's admission that it looks like we contain something that thinks and exerts causation over molecules is not the same as an admission that there exists in us or connected to us a different kind of substance from matter that exerts a causal power over matter. It's not quite what, what um, Searle said. Searle is a materialist. But I want to set that aside. I don't want to get into issues of integrity and quoting and whatnot. I want to get to the, the substance of this debate. Clearly, Getz wants to take this line of reasoning as an argument for a non-material substance. So let's say that these words were intended after all, and let's see where we end up. Now let's be absolutely clear about one thing. This is vital. If an emergentist or a dualist who is a believer in libertarian free will is finding fault with those who deny dualism because they allegedly cannot give an account of how the physical can produce things that exert mental causation, or how a physical brain can give rise to choices that are not wholly caused by physical constitution. If that is why the dualist believer in libertarian freedom is finding fault with those who aren't dualists, then there are two very telling replies to make. Firstly... Yes... That's right, kids. Thank you very much. This is an argument from ignorance. It is the unwarranted inference that since we allegedly don't have a handy account of how a physical being can make free choices, it follows that a physical being can't make free choices. But what if the physicalist takes a leaf out of Stuart Getz's book here? What if she just says, I have an introspective awareness that I am a physical being, and I have an equally clear introspective awareness that I exercise libertarian free will. If these things are supposed to count as evidence, as Getz thinks they do, then she can believe these things even before being able to offer an account of them, as we believe many things without being able to offer an account of them, such as the belief that the sky is blue, that gravity causes things to move towards the earth, that fire burns and so forth. I mean, sure, we might be able to give an account of those things, but even if we couldn't, we'd be justified in believing them. But secondly, if this is the argument being used, the objection that physicalists cannot give an account of how the brain can give rise to free choices, then it backfires badly against the dualist, because this sword cuts both ways. No dualist or emergentist writer that I am aware of has even attempted to offer an account of how a non-material mind is able to make libertarian choices. If a lack of explanation is enough to give grounds for declaring a view false, dualism is false. So the dualist or emergentist must make a much stronger claim than this. 
she must make and defend the claim that we actually know that and can explain why a material being is incapable in principle of making libertarian choices. Now I freely admit I can't do this against dualism just because the immaterial soul is such a retreat into mystery. It's such a confusing, mysterious, inexplicable thing that I can't tell what it could or could not do in this regard. But the dualist needs to make this strong claim against physicalism if the argument from free will is to have any plausibility. Remember in episode one, I introduced what Clifford Williams called the parity thesis. The thesis that God making a material being with the the ability to think is no more difficult to imagine than God creating an immaterial being with the ability to think. Now, if that's true, you might not have bought that at the time, but if you did, if that's true, then I think the same holds for God making a material being with the ability to choose. But choose freely, you might ask? Well, firstly, just how free are we talking? Obviously not free from influence, even considerable influence from external stimuli. I mean, we all make certain involuntary choices, closing our eyes when we sneeze, flinching when someone throws a rock towards our face and so forth. But what about higher level decisions? What about what to eat for dinner, who we marry, what type of music to listen to, etc.? These are all voluntary. And yet, we know that there are limits on what a person will choose, maybe even limits on what a person can choose. We can always imagine them choosing any number of crazy things, eating mud for dinner, marrying a dog, listening to the sound of a bandsaw for musical entertainment. But it's a safe bet that this is not what's going to happen. We can imagine it. As compatibilists like me point out, what you can choose is limited to certain facts about yourself facts about what you like, uh, facts about what you think is right, about what you find pleasant, and so on. From one context to another, different members of this set of factors will seem more important to you and exert a greater influence. A believer in libertarian free will hopefully will accept this to some extent. I think to some extent this has got to be obvious that these factors are at play. This also applies to the phenomenon of changing your mind about something. In fact, changing your mind, I think, is much easier to explain from a non-dualist point of view than coming up with a new decision freely. When you change your mind, you are exposed to external reasons that enter your thinking process or you locate a reason that you already learned but maybe you forgot or were not presently aware of, and it causally interacts with your existing knowledge and your criteria of, that is, your beliefs or habits concerning what count as good reasons although these two are in turn subject to change in this way as well. If the new stimulus meets certain criteria set by these parameters, presto, your mind is changed. Now, I know I'm simplifying and ignoring cases of intellectual stubbornness, but you get the idea. Be creative enough to realize that uh, exactly the same type of explanation can be applied there without me actually having to spell it out. Think of it like a set of scales. If there is enough weight to tip the balance, then the balance will tip. But how much much weight is required differs from one person to another. Think of this as the stiffness of the scales 
The stiffness of the scales is itself something caused by still another balancing act of factors, which in turn is caused by still another, and so on. Not in a linear direction requiring some sort of starting point, but more of a web of highly complex and interconnected processes differing from one thinker to the next. But still, you say, still, given all the external and internal factors in any given decision-making scenario, surely, the libertarian dualist will say, there is still more than one option in virtually every scenario, or the decision is just not free. If there's only ever one possibility, then how are you really making any kind of choice? Okay. But there's more than one outcome in some physical scenarios in unintelligent nature as well. As Hasker pointed out, nature is not as mechanistic as we might mechanistic as we might think. And that doesn't really involve a free choice, does it? But setting that aside for now, because as I said, I am going to say more about mental causation and the will in future episodes in this series, let me stop the emergentist libertarian in her tracks here and say, just wait a minute. Are you absolutely sure you're not cutting off the branch upon which you're sitting? Are you sure you're not presenting a problem that doesn't affect emergentism in exactly the same way that it affects physicalism? Let me explain why I say that. Perhaps seeing the initial implausibility of the idea of a free and distinct emergent person connected to a physical body, an idea that Hasker frankly admits to be, quote, a dramatic and, and in fact extremely controversial metaphysical claim, seeing that that does look implausible to some people at first blush, he seeks to lull the reader closer to his view, his view by offering examples in the natural world of emergent entities that have causal powers, powers that are not shared by the object upon which they are emergent. I've already referred to the magnetic field example that Hasker uses, and there is a second example as well. It's late at night. A second example as well, uh, the example of a black hole and its gravitational field. You could just as easily have used the Earth's gravitational field, but I guess a black hole is more exciting. The trouble with these analogies is that on reflection, I just don't think it's true that these cases of emergence really do show us new entities that have causal powers not possessed by the objects upon which they are emergent. I was comforted by the realization that I'm not alone in realizing this. Nancy Murphy is a proponent of a type of physicalism that I will say more about in part three of this series. It's, it's a view that I hold called non-reductive physicalism, but we'll come to that later in the series. She commented on Hasker's magnetic field example, and she, like I, observes the following. She says, This analogy actually supports my position. The term field does not describe a new entity over and above the magnet. It rather describes the area in which the magnet's causal powers are active. Now, she's clearly correct. She supports this rather un uncontroversial observation with a citation from Oxford's Concise Science Dictionary under the entry for field, which reads as follows. A field 
is thus a method of representing the way in which bodies are able to influence each other. For example, a body that has mass is surrounded by a region in which another body that has mass experiences a force tending to draw the two bodies together. End quote. What, what, this is, what I'm getting at here is there just are no causal powers in gravitational or magnetic fields that are not ultimately the causal powers of the physical bodies that generate them. What causal powers might exist in an emergent individual that are not ultimately causal powers of the body that generate that individual? What examples do we have where emergent things have not merely properties but new causal powers that do not originate in the body that is the source of their emergence. The most promising examples Hasker has are gravitational and magnetic fields, but these won't do. Think about it for yourself and see if you can come up with any. A physical object, not a living creature, that's too close to the example we're trying to explain. A physical object that generates something new, something that has powers that do not come from the physical object itself. I know of none, nor does Hasker as far as I can tell. Hasker's libertarian free will is in trouble if the only way he thinks that can exist is as a result of a substance that is emergent on the brain. He has placed his free will eggs in the basket of an emergent mind and an emergent mind doesn't appear to offer the kind of independence of matter that he thinks it does. Remember, in emergentism, the mind is not a thing that long ago emerged from the body and now exists alongside it. It is continually emergent upon the brain, like a gravitational field. And the mind can only be that which the brain has the power to generate at any given time. Take a magnet with a magnetic field behaving in a certain way. Change the length of the magnet. What happens to the field? It changes proportionally. Grind the magnet into shavings. What happens to the magnetic field? It divides up into a bunch of little fields. Take a black hole generated by a small object inside. Change the density of the object. The gravitational field changes. Now, take a brain with an emergent mind. Poke a skewer in the part of the brain associated with making decisions. Electrically, 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 I'm going to get it right, stimulate it. What happens to the emergent mind if it really is continuously emergent upon that brain? What reason is there for supposing that a mind that is emergent on a brain can be anything other than an effect of that brain and not a cause in its own right at all? Now, I'm not at all conceding that there is no escape from the argument from free will. I'm not conceding that, and I will discuss it later in this series. But for now, and this has been the point of this episode, really, just let me note that the question is vastly more complex than Getz's comments noted earlier imply. More promising than Hasker's emergentism, I think, is a property dualism advanced by Timothy O'Connor and others, where what is emergent is not a person or a mind or a substance, but rather a specific property. 
properties that are emergent on brain structures and which are used as part of a complex account of how material beings can exercise creaturely freedom. Now, I don't want you to think that my repetition of the word complex is some sort of cop-out. I just use that word multiple times to emphasize how really hasty this dualistic argument is in the hands of, of those who perhaps do not care for physicalism enough to delve into very complicated accounts of how it might work. And I'm thinking of Stuart Getz in particular when I say that. You can't, after all, expect neuroscience to be easy. It's one of the most complex things out there. And while I find this stuff fascinating, I'm not really sure that it's podcast material. It would be incredibly dry and complicated. To give you just a very brief snapshot of what I mean, to demonstrate that that really is the case, here are some rather introductory comments from Timothy O'Connor. He says, and I quote, try and stay awake. According to some of us, there is a species of the causal genus involving the characteristic activity of purpose of free agents. Such agents can represent possible course of actions, possible possible courses of action to themselves, and have desires and beliefs concerning these alternatives. Against that background motivational framework, they themselves directly bring about immediately executive states of intention to act in various ways. This direct causing of agents of states of intention goes like this. As with mechanistic causes, the distinctive capacities of agent causes, or active powers, are grounded in some set of properties. So any agent having the relevant internal properties will have it directly within his power to cause any range of states of intention, delimited by internal and external circumstances. However, these properties function differently in the associated causal processes. Instead of being associated with direct causal functions, from circumstances to effects, they, in conjunction with appropriate circumstances, make possible the agents producing an effect. These choice-enabling properties ground a different type of power or capacity, one that in suitable circumstances is freely exercised by the agent himself. Ah, well, of course, you might be saying. So, that hopefully gives you some idea of what I mean when I say it really is a little more complex than very quick summaries by certain dualists might lead on. I'm going to sidestep that kind of thing for now, which might relieve some of you, but as I keep saying, I'll say a, more about it in a little depth later in the series, just a little. But if it's a genuine problem, then it's one that I think emergentists like Hasker are stuck with. And unlike Hasker, the physicalist still has the option of trying to argue that a physically constituted mind might be able to do the job. Hasker could try this, saying that a physical brain provides the free choices of the non-physical mind, but by the time he's done this, he's just a physicalist. He's given up emergentism and he's taken his place among materialists like me, having now made the emergent mind redundant. So in summary thus far, Firstly, and this is, you could kind of just skip the whole podcast and listen to this summary. There is a dualist argument from free will or mental causation. Secondly, there is a position called emergentism that some take, I don't take, but some take it to be a species of dualism. Thirdly, the issue of free will is a lot more complex and involved 
than the dualist proponents of free will seem to realize. Fourthly, under scrutiny it emerges, emerges, pun intended, that emergentism is no more immune from the argument from free will than physicalism. If there is going to be a defense of emergentism to fend off the argument, then it will be an argument that defends at least some forms of physicalism as well, namely the ability of the physical mind to serve as the basis of libertarian free choices. And I'll say more about that defense as the series goes on. So that's a summary of what I've said so far. What further reason could there be then for an emergentist to shun physicalism. It's not going to be the unity of consciousness because that argument fails as a defense of any kind of dualism and it's not needed for emergentism. It's not going to be an argument from free will or mental causation, at least not an argument for emergentism because it's not clear that this argument really gives emergentism an advantage over other kinds of physicalism. So is an emergent mind redundant? Not quite. It does serve an important role in Hasker's theology. It is what secures the possibility of life after death, he says, and he's not alone. I think this is a much more interesting argument. This is Hasker's argument for dualism that I will be discussing at some length in the next episode in this series. It's not just used by William Hasker, it's also used by John Cooper, by Robert Peterson, and others as well. But I think Hasker, in his published work at any rate, has used the argument more often, and I think he used it more effectively. So in the next installment of In Search of the Soul, I'll be looking at William Hasker's argument that eternal life requires some sort of dualism, or in his case, he argues that he argues this claim plus he argues that emergentism will do just as well as dualism. After that, in what will now be the fourth part of the series, I'll move on to discussing physicalist views of human nature, which is where I get to the view that I actually hold. Then in part five, I'll discuss the question of human nature from a biblical point of view. So this episode may have been a bit drier than some. It's probably going to be the most boring episode in this series, if that gives you any comfort and motivation to come back next time. Remember, if you listen to this podcast via the iTunes store, which is the best way to listen, remember that Say Hello to My Little Friend is also a blog. So come and check it out at www.beretta-online.com. Click on blog and check it out. If you'd like to submit something to the blog as a guest post, go ahead and contact me via the contact page at the site or email me info at beretta-online.com. Until next time, this is Glenn Peebles signing off. Do join me again for what I promise will be an exciting episode of... Shout out to my little friend!